Well, guys, as we continue on in the what's really kind of the second introduction to the book of Romans in chapter 1, verse 8, we're reminded that context is everything. For instance, if I were to wear a hat like this, which most of you probably didn't even notice on a day like today, in the summer, you would be the only thing you'd be thinking about was my hat. But on a day like today, I'm guessing most of you didn't even notice. So context just, it matters, you know. Um, actually, Emily saw me with this on this morning in here, and she goes, please tell me you're not going to wear that when you're preaching. And I said, I think I am. And she said, you know, no one's going to take you seriously if you do that. To which I replied, Emily, name one person that takes me seriously right now, even without this hat. And then maybe you have a good point. Um, no, but uh, again, context does matter. Um, think about for a second, if you were to open a random book, maybe you're at a friend's house, see a book sitting there, you open the book, you go to a random page in the middle of the book, it's underlined, it says something like this. By the time I got home, my wife had already boxed everything up. I mean, that could mean a lot of things, right? There's a a context in which that could be like really, really bad and a context which that could be just a really industrious wife who's getting ready to move, right? It, It all depends on the context. Or if you turn to another page and it said, I looked my best friend in the eye and I said, I think this is where we part ways. Well, I mean, who knows, right? They could be on a mission and they're just kind of to divide and conquer, or it could be like a really bad breakup, right? Context is everything. And so I think sometimes when we think about going into a new book of the Bible and all the historical context, the author, when it was written, what was going on, sometimes it can be tempting to look on that stuff as kind of heady academic knowledge that's really not very practical, but it really does matter, um, and we're going to be in Romans for, for a good bit. And so I do want to spend some more time today, and Alance did some last week as well, but talking about some of the historical context about this book, why it was written, when, who, all those kinds of things. So we're going to walk through that. And then in the second half of the sermon, we'll look at the specific passage uh, more through the lens of what can we learn, how can we take the things Paul is saying here, and be encouraged to um, live for Christ in our own lives. So. Again, this first half will be more the context of the book. Um, A lot of it will be from the text today. Some of it's more from just historical things or things we've pieced together through other parts of the book. So a couple things on that. Number one, the date. It was written in A.D. 57. One of the reasons I think that is noteworthy is that this is later on in Paul's ministry. Right at this point, Paul has been planning churches, doing ministry for quite some time. This is after, or he probably wrote it during, rather, his third missionary journey. Um, He's been preaching the gospel, starting churches for a good while now. And so that's when it was written. Um, The author is, of course, Paul. We've mentioned that. You guys probably know that by now. We talked a lot about that last week. Um, But again, just noteworthy, Paul's writing this. He's in the city of Corinth, and he's on his third journey. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, taking the offering from the Gentile churches to the church who was struggling in Jerusalem. He's been collecting that offering on his way. Um, and then at that point, he plans to, to stop in Jerusalem and then, and then go back to Rome. Um, and so that's what's uh, going on as far as uh, the author. Um, the audience, we're going to spend a little bit more time on this. The audience is the churches in Rome. There's a passage um, that we covered last week where he says, um, mentions the Christians in Rome. We're going to see in chapter 15 and 16 of Romans where Paul talks about um, the fact that he wants them to greet this church and that church. So that kind of what we see is that it's not just one church in Rome. It's likely 
multiple churches, but who kind of operate in unison to where he can address them as one church or address them specifically as individual churches. So with the audience's churches in Rome, um, one of the uh, interesting things about this book is that of all Paul's letters, this is the only one he's writing to a church he himself hasn't been to. You think of Paul's, all Paul's letters in the New Testament, Galatians, uh, Ephesians, Philippians, and all times Colossians. You think about churches Paul planted that he's then writing back to. But Paul has never even um, been to this church in Rome, which kind of begs the question, how did this church even get started, right? If Paul didn't plant this church in Rome, why is there even a church um, that exists this far away from where Paul has worked. Um, So a couple different possibilities there. Number one, in Acts chapter 2, at the event of Pentecost, you guys might remember this is where the church really kind of first blew up. You had Jesus' disciples. Then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone. Um, Peter preached a sermon. Thousands believed, and the church really began to explode in number. Um, And one of the things we often forget as Christians is that we think of Pentecost being where that happened. But before that happened, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. It happened seven weeks after the Passover. So you can imagine you had people from all over the known world, specifically Jews, who'd come to congregate in Jerusalem for either the Passover or Pentecost or both. Either way, there were a lot of people there. And Acts chapter 2 actually tells us at Pentecost, there were people from Rome who witnessed that and were part of Pentecost. So it's not hard to, it's not a stretch, right, to think that some of these people who were at Pentecost who were Jews then went back to Rome where they were from and began to meet and gather as believers. There's also, of course, the possibility that as Paul and other of the apostles and disciples began to take the church um, further and further west, that some of those believers then took it even further beyond what we have recorded and that it was started by more people kind of intentionally evangelizing um, in Rome to take the gospel and the church further out. Um, But what we do know is that it likely started as mostly Jewish um, believers. And then something really interesting happened. In AD 49, um, there was an event that's recorded both in scripture and extra-biblical sources where an emperor named Claudius kicked all of the Jews out of Rome over some dispute, something he was tired of. So the city of Rome was just wiped out of Jews. Um, And so they all had to leave. They weren't killed. They just asked to leave. And so likely what you have here is, um, again, this letter is written in 57. So this is seven years after that happened, um, after all the Jews were kicked out. So during that time, it's not hard to imagine that a lot of these churches became dominated and probably um, only filled by Gentiles, and that Gentiles would then assume the leadership positions. Um, What we know through some context we're going to look at here in a second is that eventually those Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. We'll see that with two um, individuals specifically. And so what you have is some, some conflict brewing over the whole Jew-Gentile issue. Um, this church that was started and led by Jews with a few Gentiles, all the Jews are kicked out, now the Gentiles are leading, now the Jews are trying to come back in and find their place. And you can imagine the kind of tensions that would likely cause. Um, but let's look for a second at Paul's connection to this church. And Again, we know that Paul did not, he'd not been to that church, but we're going to see if we look deep at this text, is that he did have some connections to the people there. Um, two people in, in specifically that show us pretty cool context here. So in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 2, Paul is on his second missionary journey. 
um, and he's gone to um, uh, Corinth. And look at this right here. It'll be on the screen. Acts 18, 1 through 2, it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found there a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So we're going to pull up a map here so you can see what we're talking about. So you can imagine, right, um, this is Rome over here, that Prisca and Aquila lived here, but when um, in AD 49, when Claudius issued that edict, they had to leave Rome, and for some reason they chose to come all the way down here to Corinth. And that's where Paul met them on his second missionary journey. He was making disciples, and he stayed with some people who were originally from Rome who had moved to Corinth. Um, so he's talking to them. It's about 617 miles away as the crow flies. So they not only left Rome, they, they went a long ways away to Corinth for some reason. Um, but Paul met them there. Fast forward seven years later, Paul's on his third missionary journey. He's coming through Corinth, and he notices that Prisca and Aquila are no longer there um, because they have gone back to Rome. And one of the things we see in Romans is he's writing this letter, and he specifically says to greet Prisca and Aquila. That's how we know that they have then moved back to Rome. Uh, Romans 16, 3 through 4, when Paul's doing kind of his final greetings um, at the end of the book, he says, greet Prisca and Aquila my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life. Not only that, but we see his, not only his connection to Prisca and Aquila, because um, you can imagine Paul's in Corinth when he writes Romans. Seven years after he was there on his second journey, Prisca and Aquila have gone back to Rome. They're not there, but he's probably thinking about them um, as he writes this letter. And because he's in Corinth, he's thinking about them and mentions them in the letter. Not only that, but if you keep reading in Romans 16, there are about 25 other disciples that Paul mentions by name. He says, greet these guys, greet these guys. Now, some of them may be people he's just heard about. In fact, one of them, he says, um, this person was well known to the apostles and was in Christ before I was. So there is some sort of personal connection to the church, even though Paul has never been there. So that's kind of the, the date, the author, the audience. Um, let's look now at the occasion. There's basically, if we were to boil it down to why is Paul writing this letter, what's going on that he decides, I'm going to write a letter to this, these people, this church, um, that I've never been to. Why would he do that? Number one, probably the most driving factor, the reason Paul wrote this letter, is that Paul wants to go to Spain via Rome. Paul wants to go to Spain via Rome. So let's pull up another map here, show you what I'm talking about. Um, so again, this kind of was zoomed out quite a bit here, but... Paul, you know, started kind of in Jerusalem, Antioch, did his first, second, and third missionary journeys all through this area. Uh, you're going to see Corinth is right around here. And again, now Paul is saying, look, I've only come this far. I'd like to come and visit you in Rome on my way to Spain. So one of the reasons, big reasons Paul's writing this letter is because Paul doesn't want to be rooted in kind of his home base church in Antioch, and then trying to go back and forth to Spain to establish churches and preach the gospel. Instead, what seems like what Paul's wanting to do is kind of move his home base to Rome where there's already a church so that he can be connected there, established there, supported there, and then go back and forth to Spain to preach the gospel and start more churches. So part of what you have here, and a lot of theologians believe that the reason Romans is such a long, detailed explanation of the gospel 
it's part of Paul's motivation is he's trying to let them be acquainted with and establish his own credibility. Like he's saying, hey, you've probably heard different Jews and people discrediting the gospel I preach. This is the gospel I preach so that he can then come there with kind of that introduction with some um, baseline of his theology so that he can be accepted there and sent um, by them to Spain with their support. And I was actually thinking about that, um, how we've seen something kind of similar at our church happen. About six years ago, there was a couple named Hunter and Alicia who were here at Crosspoint um, coming to us wanting to be sent to the Middle East as uh, missionaries, church planters. And we talked to them and agreed to kind of get behind them and support them. We put together what's called, we call an advocacy team, a, a group of people, families from our church, Mark Bowder, uh, led that team where their job was just to really kind of hold the line for them, to keep in touch with them, to speak to them on a very regular basis so it wasn't out of sight, out of mind, find out as they went how they were doing, what their struggles were, how we could help, really stay connected as we were the main church who was supporting them um, as they were in the Middle East. But eventually what happened, which is a, is a good thing, is that they um, got to the country where they were going to end up living they began to try to do ministry there, and they found another group of believers who were meeting as a church, and that then became their base, and that became their church. And we weren't really needed as much anymore to kind of hold that line for them because they had their relationships and support with other believers um, there in the Middle East. And so it's kind of a similar thing we see with Paul is that he's going to go out, and he wants a home base of Christians in a church to support him that's closer um, and so he wants to be acquainted with them, and more than anything, probably he wants them to be acquainted with him and his message so that he can be accepted there when he arrives. Another reason is that Paul wants to strengthen the church. Why would Paul write this letter? Well, same reason he would write any of his other letters, because he's concerned not just for whatever church he's a part of at the time, but for, I think, the church, Big C, globally, at large. And he knows there's believers here, and he wants to share the gospel with them put that out there for them, help them in their faith. Um, he even says, like, look, I'm, my intent is not to, I've been wanting to come see you for a while, not so I can stay there and continue to, you know, do outreach there. I may do a little bit of that, but really to strengthen you, to be encouraged by you, and to encourage you on my way to Rome, because Paul wants to preach the gospel where it has not yet been made known. Um, and then thirdly, another reason we think Paul wrote this letter is that he wants to encourage Unity through the gospel. Again, you can imagine the situation with Jews used to be the leaders of the church. They got kicked out. Now the Romans are leading, but now the Jews are allowed to return to Rome. Tensions are likely very hot. Um, there's a lot of threatening um, components to their unity. And what you see in um, the gospel of Romans, um, or sorry, not the gospel of Romans, but the gospel Paul presents in Romans is a gospel that focuses on how Jews and Gentiles are all broken. It doesn't matter which line you come from, Jew or Gentile. You're in need of grace. You're in need of forgiveness. And that we're all saved, Jew and Gentile, by the work of Jesus. That there is one gospel, um, one faith, and one baptism by which we will be saved, Jew and Gentile. So Paul's presenting the gospel specifically in a way not just to show the vertical reconciliation between God and man, but to show the horizontal reconciliation among the church to Jew and Gentile, that they are both um, 
brought in as sons and daughters of the same father through the work of the gospel. So that's a little bit about why Paul's writing it, what's going on, a little bit about maybe, maybe more than you care to know about how we know some of those things. Um, but now let's, let's move into the practical. And this is, this is going to be a bit of a challenge in the book of Romans for the first 12 chapters because it's so theological. It's so, here's who God is, here's what sin is, here's why we need Jesus, right? Other than the, the, our need to be saved, there's just not a lot of, now go and do, now live like this. So there's some, but there's not a, not a whole lot of that until you get to chapter 12. So one of the things we have to do is really look at the passage intentionally through that lens and ask, man, how can we be encouraged by what we see in Paul? Um, I don't know about you, but that's always, that's always a little tricky for me, right? When you, when you try to ask that question of like, how can, how can we look at Paul's life and be encouraged to live a more godly life? Because it feels like an unfair comparison, right? I mean, it feels like, yeah, good luck comparing yourself to Paul. In fact, sometimes um, it can feel a little bit like this. I don't know about you guys, but that's often how I feel when I'm like, how do we look at Paul's life and be encouraged in our own lives? Like, yeah, that, that, that can be more discouraging than encouraging um, if we're not careful. But the reality is, you know, all the things Paul says in his letters, he's writing it to like normal folks like you and I, right? He's writing it to um, people who are just part of a church, trying to learn what it means to follow Jesus um, and, and, and order our lives around um, the gospel. And so I want to look at a few things that we can kind of draw out from this text, just as we see Paul's heart, Paul's desires, and how that can encourage us. So we'll look at four things here. Number one, we should find encouragement from other believers. We should find encouragement from other believers. Um, look in chapter one, verse eight. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So we see what Paul is encouraged here by is not anything they said to him or anything they did for him, but what Paul is encouraged by is just the fact that they exist. <laughs> like just the fact that there is a group of believers meeting in Rome that for, for whatever reason, their, their size or their impact on the community or just their reputation as this kind of outlying group of Christians. For whatever reason, everyone in the known world, all the churches know about this church in Rome. And Paul's encouraged just by the fact that they're there. Um, and I think that's something we we probably take for granted here in, uh, you know, Rockwell, Texas, right? Like you don't, if you were to meet someone at the store or like a, say you're like at a, one of your kids' sporting events and you meet another parent and you find out um, they go to this church and another church, you wouldn't like be ecstatic and like, oh my gosh, another Christian here in Rockwell. This is amazing, right? You wouldn't have that response because it's, it's, it's pretty common here, right? Um, but I think because of that, we often forget how special of a thing it is just to encounter a brother and sister in Christ. Um, I remember being in Germany, and two different times this happened when, when uh, the organization I work for, Igo Global, we were leading mission trips to, uh, to Germany, specifically some cities where there's just very little um, prominence of the church. There are believers there, but nothing like what it is here in terms of percentage numerically. And we were on a train, kind of a kind of an hour-long trip on a train, going from one city to another. We're you know just sitting down on benches, and 
there was a group of uh, kind of single guys, like young 20s, maybe young 30s, sitting up the aisle and to the left of us, and they just kept kind of side-eyeing us, you know, and I didn't know if it was because we were speaking English or it's because how we were dressed, we didn't look uh, as hip as the Germans did, right? Um, maybe we, we gave ourselves away in that, but they kept kind of just looking at us, and they would kind of talk to each other and say something. Finally, one of them came over and sat next to us and said, hey, my buddy and I were just talking, and we're, we're Christians. Are you guys Christians? And it just meant the world to them to just, like, get to bump into someone on a train that was clearly, for whatever reason, a Christ follower. Uh, maybe that was just kind of the Holy Spirit um, convicting us or, or saying that to us. It was kind of the same for us. We've been there for a while trying to share the gospel with folks and getting a lot of rejection. It just seems like, man, a lot of people just don't want anything to do with Jesus in this place. These guys come along, and there's just this very rich level of encouragement that happens there. That happened a second time, a different year, um, in Germany on a different train where there was a girl, um, I think her name was Christine, that she was on my team. And same deal, like a couple seats up, there was a, a lady, an older lady, but not old, old, but like, you know, 40s, 50s, middle age, and she was just sitting there and she just looked kind of, you know, kind of dejected, a little sad, and uh, sorry about the old thing, that was a little weird, I don't know what to say there, she wasn't like this, like, wasn't like using a walker and white hair, you know, she's just over there, she's middle age, so um, this girl next to me, she's like, I want to go talk to her, so she walks up there, and uh, she sits down next to her, and they begin to talk, and she didn't really know English that great, probably because of her age or something, I don't know, she didn't know English that great, um, uh, Christine obviously didn't know German very well, but they began to communicate, and they, they were able to identify that each other were Christians, and then that lady, she just started started crying. Um, and Christine was just like, she started crying too. It was just this really cool, sweet moment that just the fact that they were believers and that they were there, that in itself um, was an encouragement, one of them to the other. And that's what we see Paul saying, that he wants to come there, um, that he would be encouraged by them and they would be encouraged by him. You see that in chapter 1. Verse 11, he says, I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And that's what we saw in both incidents um, in Germany. It's just, there's just this encouragement just by the fact that each other are there. So, for us, I mean, again, you're not going to have an, an encounter like that um, not only the fact there's not really many trains around here, unless you're on the dart, um, but just you're not going to have those sort of encounters here. But just a reminder for us to not take for granted what happens in this room, um, even here on a Sunday morning, right? Like, look at the people around you. There ought to be some encouragement that you're, you're not alone in this. That as you, as you are trying to follow Jesus and order your life around his instructions, there's a lot of other people around you trying to do that too. And just the presence in the company of other believers, just the fact that each other exists and we can see and hear each other in this room ought to be a great source of encouragement to us. There's a commentator, Thomas Schreiner, who said it this way. What inspires and fortify, fortifies other believers is when they perceive faith in other Christians. And he goes on to say, seeing other believers trust God in the course of everyday life reminds us that God is indeed faithful. It encourages us to trust him as well. And if you, guys, if you're connected to a small group here, if you just have other people in your life who are also Christians, you've seen this very thing at play where 
one of your brothers or sisters in Christ is maybe going through a difficult thing, or maybe just the way they handle a specific situation, which really shows that they're really leaning on the Lord in that situation, it's an encouragement for you to do the same as similar situations come up in your own life. So we should be finding encouragement from other believers. Number two, we should find unity in the gospel. And again, we've already really made this point, but Paul is really focused on his presentation of the gospel in Romans as not just having a, a vertical component, God and man, but a horizontal component. Um, and I think about the fact that, you know, what you're going to see later on in the book of Romans is Paul uses these examples of like kind of the natural citizens of the kingdom being Jews, right? Because they were chosen by God, called by him um, way before Jesus showed up on the scene, right? And then you've got these Gentiles who are almost seen as like grafted in or adopted into this family of God coming in at a later time in a different way. But what Paul is saying is like, look, no matter, no matter how you got here, you're here now. And if you're in Christ, you, you, you're a Jew and Gentile. You share the same father. That makes you brothers and sisters in Christ. You're one family and it's all you got. Um, and I couldn't help but think about families in our church that have, I know several that have some kids who are adopted and some kids who are uh, biological. And my family does not have that. We have only uh, three biological kids, none that are adopted. But I, w- I would certainly imagine that in a family like that, if you had kids who were adopted, like one of the things you would, you would want to not happen would be for there to be any kind of a riff or, or jealousy or, or bitterness or anything like that between one group and the other, right? You would probably reminding them and encouraging them, just like we do with our kids when they fight with each other every once in a while, um, is that, look, this, you're, you're, you're family. This is your brother. This is your sister. This is all you got. Like, your friends are going to come and go based on your location, your stages of life, but your family, this is who you have. And one day, mom and I will be gone, and this, you have each other. That is your family treated as such. You can almost envision Paul having that same tone, writing this book to these believers saying, hey, Jews and Gentiles, like I know there's some friction there. I know you've got some, um, some differences. I know that brings about some difficulties, but this is your family. And church, if we're to apply that to ourselves here in Rockwell, Texas, 2,000 years later, it's not that hard to do. It's just a matter of looking at the people around you and going, hey, that's, this is my family. These are not just other people who go to church, the same church I do. These are my brothers and sisters in Christ that we have locked arms with and are following the gospel, ordering our lives around Jesus alongside these people. And because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus' death was no more needed by, by you than by me or by me over you, like all of us come into this thing because Jesus has come and died in our place for our sins, making us, through our belief in him, sons and daughters of his. That makes us all on even footing. All of us are completely sons and daughters, 100% of the same father. And so just a quick check there, I think, is in order. When we think about the fact that you're sitting around your brothers and sisters, do you treat it with that same level of gravity you would in your own family? So just a encouragement for you if there's anyone in this church right now in your small group or at the church in large leadership whatever it is that you're sideways with or you have some animosity towards 
man, don't let that fester. Don't let that create a, um, a rift between you and them or you and the church. It, it's worth doing the work to reconcile that because this is your family, because the gospel has united us as, as to one father, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And you see that it's such a great concern of Paul writing to this church, and we would do well to heed that concern over our own congregation as well. And then number three, we should be mindful and prayerful of the church. It's interesting what you see in verse nine, Paul says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. So you've got this idea of Paul saying, look, all the time I'm thinking about you and praying for you. And I don't think Paul means like 24-7, right? I mean, he's still got to eat, still got to sleep. He's making tents, right? He's writing letters, right? He's not literally doing it 24-7 every second of the day. But what do you think he must mean is that like, man, you guys are always on my mind, on my heart, in my prayers. And I thought about that as just a good check for us again of like, is that true of us? Like how often would we say that about the people in this room, um, the people in this church? Would we say that, man, these are the people that are often on my mind, in my heart, and in my prayers? How often do we just think of people in this church and how they're doing in our, in our kind of transition or downtime? Like when you're, when you're waking up or when you're going to bed or when you're on your commute, right, and your mind is just kind of thinking about all the things going on in your world, how often do you think about the other members in this church? Now, as a pastor, right, I realize that's, that's kind of unfair comparison there, right? I'm constantly getting texts and email updates about different things going on with different people um, in this congregation. So, of course, it's, it's on my mind more, maybe, maybe a little more than it is um, yours as a member. But there was an encouragement for me in this to how often do those thoughts turn into prayers? Because I'll be honest, there's a lot of times where I'll think about a family um, that something's going on with them, and I'll go, man, what can we do to help? Um, do I need to check in with them? Is someone else already reaching out to them? What small group are they in? I kind of think about those things, maybe come up with a plan or someone to ask, and then just kind of move on, right? Um, move on to the next thing without really lifting that thing up in prayer. And so one of the things this passage convicted me and that I've been trying to put into practice is just like, man, when you have those little thoughts, like, I wonder how that person's doing. Man, just take a second and just, Pray for them, for, even if it's just for a minute. Um, instead of waiting till you get a text and say, hey, we all pray for this. Okay, well, I'll stop and pray. But just as you go and as you're thinking about other people in this body, take a minute to really pray for them. Lift those concerns up to the Lord and seek his help and his guidance on their behalf as you think about other believers. Um, that was a challenge to me, and I hope that will be a, a good challenge to you as well. And then lastly, we have an obligation to share the gospel. At the end of this passage today, in verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now again, it's tricky comparing ourselves to Paul, right? Because Paul had a very clear, direct call on his life, very specific call to take the gospel um, outside of the Judea to the Gentiles, right? God had specifically said, that's going to be your focus. That's going to be your mission. But all of us have a general calling from the Lord in Scripture 
um, to be about sharing the gospel. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's not unique to Paul. That is there for all of us. Um, And so when we consider that, that word obligation is that sense of being compelled, right? It's that sense of feeling responsible, feeling like, man, I really should do something about this. I really should share the gospel with this person. It's incumbent upon me to do that. I feel compelled um, to do those things. And so just an encouragement for us in that, like, man, even if, even if it's not going to a specific place like, like Paul had been commanded and made it his ambition to do, uh, maybe it's just even the people around you. And so just take a second and ask yourself, like, who are the people that don't know the Lord that the Lord has brought into my life? And do, I'm not even going to talk about actually sharing and starting that conversation, all that. Just step back even further from that and just, based on this text, do I sense that obligation? Do I feel responsible to share the gospel because God has put someone in my life that doesn't know about Jesus? I mean, friends, that's where evangelism starts is just feeling the sense of like, yeah, I'm responsible for that, right? If that person that God has put in my circle, in my path, and they don't know the Lord and we're connected, like there ought to be a sense of like, Paul says, I'm, I'm obliged, I'm under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. Do we sense an obligation to share what Jesus has done for us with those around us? Yes, please pray with me. God, I pray that we would do that. Um, I pray that we would have that sense of obligation with those around us. Um, We would have a sense of burden and be compelled um, to make what you've done for us known to those around us because you've been so good to us. Um, And God, I pray that we would um, just be encouraged by all these things we see in Paul of being mindful um, and prayerful of the church, being, being unified, um, all these little nuggets we can take away. God, you would use what we can draw from this to convict each person in this room for um, where you would have us grow um, in light of what we see from Paul in this text. Um, God, I thank you for the book of Romans. We look forward to going through it and um, deepening our understanding of the gospel and also Um, taking away things we can apply to our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.